until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirits of your mind, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It was great to worship as a network with all of the uh, Liberty Churches worshiping together last week. And it's also good to be back together to worship today. Um, Let's take just a moment and pray for the Lord's presence. We want to depend on him as we learn from his word together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and and we acknowledge our need for you. We acknowledge the fact that we uh, are nothing without you, that we are everything with you, and we need to learn from you. So give us your spirit in fuller and fuller measure. Open your word to us. uh, Illumine it to us, to our minds, and make it practical and um, applicable to our lives. For you are not a God just of of words, but of of doing as well. Do that in our lives as we uh, study your word together, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been uh, studying the book of, we've been studying a passage, a series on relationships. And we've been reading a book as we go throughout the Sundays, from Sunday to Sunday, a book called Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And uh, each week we pull out a passage of scripture that helps draw out some of the things that frustrate our relationships together. And some of the things we need to work on, how God would have us work on our relationships together. This week we're going to take a look at um, agendas, and it's been interesting as I've thought about the passage uh, over the last couple of weeks, I've been really struck at how much agenda is a part of every encounter that we have. Uh, You know, one of the things I'd ask you to do, and I'll ask you to do at the end, is spend some time this coming week just in your interactions with people thinking about, what do I want out of this? 
What, what's my agenda for uh, interacting with this person right now? It could be somebody close to you. It could be somebody who's a stranger who you're meeting at the grocery store. Just think about your agenda, and you'll see that it's always present. Now, the question is, does it come in line with God's agenda or not? Well, let me save you the, the trouble. <laughs> it's, there's always a distance between our agenda and God's agenda. But the question is, how does the gospel affect that? And so we're going to be looking at that today. This passage, you know, in the old days, in the days of God's covenant people around Mount Sinai and, and, and beyond, they would spend 11 hours a day just hearing the word of God read. So if this was overwhelming to you, take heart. We didn't have to read, you know, the entire Torah uh, today, this morning. We're just covering Ephesians 4. Um, it's going to be good because... And the reason why we're looking at such a full passage is this is a grid. This is a framework. This is a lens that you're going to be using to look at the rest of your relationships and the things that we cover about relationships in the gospel as we continue our series together. I was thinking about uh, football, as, uh, as tonight many of you will be as well. And I thought one way to think about this passage and, and open us and get us oriented to what we're studying together is I had a friend who had an eight-year-old son and the son loved to play football on his video game. He just played football all the time and he was great. And the mistake that the son made and boys often do at this age is that because he knew the rules of the game, because he was fluent at the game, because he could win at the game, he thought that translated into him being able to go out and play football right away. Right? He would be a good football player. I'm awesome at this game. I'm going to be awesome in real life too. So what happened is that there's a world of difference between the boy knowing about football, how it plays and works in a simulation, and discipling and disciplining his own body to be coordinated enough to actually play football. It takes a lot of coordination. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of training. You got to get in shape. I remember football practice when I was a kid and many guys just throwing up because they'd never worked that hard in their lives. You know, you'd run so much and you'd hit each other so much and you'd do so much effort that your body just reacted to it and you would vomit. And so there's, it takes time to grow in this way. It takes focus and energy and training and is regular, ongoing process to actually learn how to play football himself. Well, guess what? Relationships are the same way. We need to go after them regularly and spend time and discipline ourselves with them and train in them and grow up in them and mature in them. And Ephesians 4 is all about that. It's all about the, the destination for our life together is our maturity in our knowledge of Christ worked out in practical ways in our lives together. So that's what we're going to be looking at. We've got a lot to cover. I know it's a big passage. Again, not so big if you're thinking about reading the whole Torah in a worship service. But we, uh, it is big, so I just want to get started. We're going to be talking about maturity in the gospel. We're going to look in big parts, and you'll be looking at your study at big parts this week of uh, this chapter. Verses 1 through 6 deal with God's call to unity in our lives. Verses 1 through 6 deals with God's call to unity in our lives. The next thing we'll look at is verses 7 through 16. You've got to have an appreciation for the diversity that's going on in God's people, in, the body, in his body. There's an appreciation of diversity that's, that's necessary, healthy, and good. In fact, woven into who we're made to be as a community. And then uh, lastly, 17 through 32 
It's a great picture of our struggle with relationships in practical ways and God's agenda for our relationships and the way they should look practically given his love and his peace and his spirit that he gives to us. So let's start with a call to unity. In verse 3, Paul uses the word maintain. Maintain the unity of the spirit because of the deep bond that's been given to you by the Holy Spirit in community. You already share a deep bond that's been given to you by grace. You're, you're already sharing it. Because of the bond of the Holy Spirit, you already share a deep bond. It's not something you have to create. You've been given it. Now, there, was a, um, there were some Scottish soldiers who were in an intern camp, an imprisonment camp, a prisoner of war camp in World War II. And uh, they, the, the prisoners were tortured in, uh, in awful ways, as you, as you know and have read about. And one of the things that happened is that the humanity, the fellow prisoners, everybody around started to really despair under the weight of such oppression and such evil that was done to them. And there was a moment where one of the soldiers described there were some of the prisoners, some of the guards would cook in the uh, kitchen and bring out this slop of rotting mess that had been the scraps of what they had been cooking them for, the, for themselves and throw it out onto the ground, into the dirt. And there was a day where one of the soldiers saw one of the prisoners uh, go after it ravenously and sort of like attack a bone that was in this slop on the ground to take it for himself and just gnaw on it. And he looked into his eyes and he realized that this other prisoner had descended below the level of humanity. He'd become like a beast, become like a wild animal. And just when everybody was despairing at their greatest, Christ's spirit blew through the camp and started to change people so that they would give themselves to others. They saw a need, they met it. And they would give themselves to others at the expense of themselves. One of the Scottish soldiers was a big guy, big hulking guy. They were only getting, you know, like a quarter cup of rice a day. And they were doing heavy manual labor every day. And this guy saw that one of his... One of his uh, bunkmates was failing in his health as most guys were and he decided that's not going to happen and he gave him his rice and he made sure that he didn't die and the guy didn't die his bunkmate didn't die he was able to live through the nourishment that was given to him but the big man did because he couldn't sustain the loss himself this was warp and woof of life together after Christ blew through the camp so much so that after they were liberated they came home on a ship they, they came into Liverpool there was a strike going on on the dock where there were groceries that were in danger of rotting on the dock because the workmen wouldn't deliver them to the grocery stores. Well, these guys had such a bond between them that was so natural by this point because of the gospel, seeing in need, meeting it, that they rolled up their sleeves, they got off the boat, and they started to lift the boxes. They were going to go deliver them wherever they needed to go themselves. They were stopped. They were stopped because... It's counterintuitive in our culture to see a need and meet it in that way. But because of their bond, there's a real uh, interaction with meeting needs. So one of the things that we have to do is realize that this bond is a gift. It's not something that we naturally create. It's not something natural to ourselves. It's not something we manufacture. It's given to us by grace, by a graceful God who loves us And we're tasked with maintaining it, being stewards of it. You see this in in Scripture all the time where people are given something that is not their own and yet they're tasked with uh, honoring it as though it is their own. Do you realize that nothing you have is yours? Everything that you have has been given to you by God through grace. Do you relate to yourself that way? Do you relate to one another that way? We have a bond of unity in the Spirit 
where we realize we have to maintain this gift that's been given. We've been graciously given the gift, a bond of unity. Therefore, our relationships with one another are gifts to be maintained with great care. And we're either going to be bad stewards or good stewards of this gift of relationship with one another. There's no in-between. You know, we, when we're maintaining something precious we've been giving, you can, you can either not caring for it or you are caring for it. What does not caring for the gift of relationship look like? I think one of the things that you can see is just hindering relationships with other believers in any way. It devalues the gift. If you hinder your relationships with other in the community in any way, it devalues the gift. If you're pulling back, if you're isolating, if you're stonewalling, if you're thinking, oh, I, can't, I just don't have the energy for this, you're devaluing the gift. You have lost perspective on what's been given to you in relationship. Do you have the relationships in our community where you can intentionally maintain your bond in the Holy Spirit that you've been giving? Relationships of depth. I've talked to many of you, and one of the things we're great at is casual relationships. Do you have the relationships of depth that you need? Some of you do, and some of you don't. The point is is that we need, it's going to be work, it's going to be effort, joyful effort. We've been given a great gift. Let's respond to it by making the effort of maintaining it and being good stewards of it. Um, One of the things that, that I'll talk to you about is just by way of illustration is that some of you are in great relationships. Some of you are meeting weekly with a group of guys and you're praying together and talking through life or a group of gals and you're praying together and talking through life and together the gospel is becoming more real to you as you go and as you intercede for one another and as you live life together. Now, that's like it's like a vacation lake, you know. You go to the lake and you bring family and friends and you love it and you, you love to bring family and friends into that lake and you swim together and it's joyful and you want to swim together in that lake, right? But the reality is the lake also has these chilling cold spots where you can't swim. It's the water's coming up from ice-fed, like these spring-fed streams and you try to go into the water and it's chilling to the bone. You can't bring your family, you can't bring your friends and it's really hard to exist in those parts of the lake, Now, here at Liberty Fairmount, if you're in a warm, swimmable spot and you have the relationships that are really helping you to flourish in the gospel, you're in a warm part of the lake, but please don't look at the rest of the lake as though it's just warm. Paul says that we need to mature. There are going to be cold spots. But likewise, don't become too cynical if you're in a cold part of the lake and and you're frustrated and you can't swim and you can't enjoy yourself and you're not able to bring family and friends. Don't look at the rest of the lake as, oh, as though it's only that cold spot. The reality is that both exist, and part of our maturing is to, is to make the lakes more swimmable for everybody, right? Um, so, you know, one of the things that would get in the way uh, or not caring for the gifts of relationship would be hindering our relationship with other believers in any way. Another would be gossiping or engaging in ungodly con- conflict. And basically what this does is this harms the gifts. This harms the relationships that God has given you given to us. Do not harm, but maintain the bond of God's spirit that you've been given. Well, what does caring for these gifts look like? It means a willingness to pursue one another. I know. I'm busy too. What does it mean to actively pursue? That's what the groups of two and three are all about. You know about these? So our home meetings, we we recognized a long time ago, even before I arrived, that our home meetings are not enough to have the level of depth and relationship that we need to flourish in the gospel. And so from the founding, those early documents on, one of the things that we've isolated is that we need groups of two or three. 
But be careful, because one of the things that can happen is you can look around and say, well, who's not, why is not anyone not pursuing me for a group of two or three? You know, I feel isolated, I feel alone, I feel like it's hard to connect. I understand. I understand that pain more than you think. But let me tell you that Jesus, when he talks about forgiveness, for example, he says the ball is always in our court. He says in Matthew that whenever you're at the altar and you remember somebody has something against you, you go and you be reconciled, right? Or if you have somebody against some, something against somebody else, you go and be reconciled. Where's the ball? Whose court is the ball in? It's in ours. It's always in ours. So when it means, when we talk about two or, groups of two or three where you have the relationships and level of depth that you need to grow in the gospel, what we're saying is go after Choose two or three people and go after them. Pray for them. Encourage them. Challenge them in the scripture. Have them on your mind. Have them on your heart. That is how we grow in maturity. We need one another in that way. <clears throat> but don't, you know, if you're, if you're harming, you've got to stop that. You've got to pull back from the things that harm our relationships together. <clears throat> uh, what else does caring for these gifts look like. It looks like a willingness to forgive one another. Are you holding something against someone? Have you asked yourself if you're willing to forgive them? Friends, we need to forgive one another. The end of the passage explodes into that very practical advice. This is what our faith is based on. God has forgiven us, and so we forgive others. If you're holding on to it, you're not letting God be God. You're not letting God mature you. You've got to forgive You've got to forgive. Uh, Paul also says in verse 3, make every effort. He uses this phrase, eager to maintain. Eager to maintain. When you're eager about something, your attention goes to it. You put your energy into it. You think about it. You make every effort. Right? You've got to be eager to maintain the relationships between, between one another. Look, relationships between anyone, even people in whom God's Spirit dwells, are not easy because of our brokenness. We've looked at our brokenness and the challenge that it is to our relationships. It's hard. Paul knows it's hard. That's why he says you've got to be eager and you've got to maintain it. You've got to put the work in. It's going to be hard work. We've got to do it. When, race, when relationships require work, we don't like the way they taste. They aren't satisfying to us. They aren't interesting to us. We don't spend time on them. One of the things that um, pastors get to see that most of us don't get to see is that you, <clears throat> you have to spend a lot of time loving people that you wouldn't normally spend time loving. And um, what happens is that there's the actual discipline of giving love and sharing love and spending time loving with people. I knew a pastor who um, would receive a call from a couple in the church that was really, not here, but was really... Um, a troubled couple. Everybody, it was like the parting of the Red Sea when they came in the door. Everybody would part the other way, didn't want anything to do with them because they were so needy. They were really like, they would just suck the life out of things. And yet, this pastor had, by nature of his office, to spend time loving them in practical ways. The calls at three in the morning when the baseball bats and the guns came out. He had to show up. You know what he found? Through the act of loving them over a period of months and months and months and months, when it seemed like Nothing was helping them. He'd actually grown to love them. The first thing that he wanted to do when somebody asked him, who do you want to spend time with this weekend? Their names came up to him. So there's something about practically loving one another, even if we don't feel like it, that cultivates the love of the Holy Spirit in our heart, that changes us. It's important. 
Make every effort. Paul says that our excitement, our satisfaction as human beings is to be found in the context of the gospel working through us in hard work, in relationship together. He also says in verse 2 that we're to be humble, gentle, patient, and forbearing in love. Jesus' character qualities are developing in us what should drive our relationships. You know, humility is one of the things he mentions. Humility enables us to see our own sin before we focus on the sin and weakness of another. Do you hold others to a higher standard than you hold yourself to? Are you at least as familiar with your own faults as you are with somebody, with those faults of this person who's wronged you in the conflict? It usually goes the other way, you know. We usually have a laundry list of faults of the other person, but our laundry list is blank for ourselves. We can really readily access the full to-do list, pages long, of the way the other person needs to change. But when you talk about how we ask yourself how you need to change in this situation, even if you've been wronged, it's blank. There's no, not even a single thing to mark off on the to-do list, right? Jesus said, first take the log out of your own eye so that you can help someone take the speck out of their eye with regards to our faults and what our needs are in relationship with one another. So we need to be humble. We need to be gentle. Now, gentleness is not weakness. A lot of people mistake gentleness or kindness for weakness. It's not weakness. Gentleness is using strength to empower others without damaging those we're trying to help. Do people regularly feel bruised in their relationship with you? Are you not gentle? The, uh, <laughs> don't laugh too much at me. Um, the, the easiest example I thought of was the dog whisperer, Cesar Milan, right? He talks about being calm assertive rather than angry assertive. Now, he's working with dogs, and dogs are pack animals, and they respond to an, an alpha male figure, somebody in authority. And that's the way pack animals work, and dogs included. And he knows that. His grandfather taught him that. But he doesn't, you know, he doesn't get angry at the dogs. You never see him get angry at the dogs. He's calm assertive. He knows exactly what they need to do. And he, they know he's, in, he's the first. He's, in, he's the top dog. And they fall right in line, and everything becomes much easier for them. And they, and they, well, it's the same with us. When you're assertive, are you angry assertive? People joke about people in Philadelphia being grumpy. Are you grumpy assertive? Don't be grumpy assertive. (laughs) Be gentle assertive. It's strength used to empower others. Patience. Placing the needs of others higher than or at the same level as your own. Not coming with a self-centered agenda. Look, if you're a parent and you have younger kids or kids that can sort of interact in the home... I see this all the time in my own home and with myself particularly. You've seen it. I'm exhausted and I want some downtime where there's no one who comes to me for anything, right? And then what happens? In come the kids, one after another. Go to bed. They trot back out. But I need this. Go to bed. But they trot back up. But I need that. Go to bed. But they trot back. And so I have a choice. I'll either grow in my inpatient, which sadly I'm... Sad to report to you, is sometimes the case, often the case. I'll either grow in my impatience and, pl- and place what I want higher than what they want, frustrated that I'm being blocked from what I want, or I'll grow in my patience and not relate to them through my agenda, but through God's agenda for myself and for them. 
maturing. It's part of what needs to happen in our relationships together. So patience, forbearing. Uh, Forbearance is being humble, gentle, patient, all those things we just mentioned. Even when provoked, even when the relationship turns sour, you're not holding it over the people. Do you love people instead with limits that are driven by your own perceived needs or interests? Do others feel as they must always return the favor to keep you happy with them? Look, I've noticed a general attitude as I've, if I've rooted, rooting myself down and establishing myself in Philadelphia, here's a general attitude that I've noticed. Um, I often encounter resistance to showing intentional kindness to other people. There's a resistance to it. What do I mean? Well, for example, um, I, I've decided and determined in my own sort of head and mind, I'm not sure if this is safe or not, but I've decided to do it and determined to do it, to actually be gracious on the road when I'm driving, right? To pause and let somebody else take the first stab at the turn. And I did this last week on an intersection. It's a strange intersection. It's one of these ones where many roads come together. And so you really got to either, you know, the normal way is just to be aggressive and take your turn. And then everybody knows that everybody else is going to be aggressive. So I paused with another car across this strange intersection and I, I waved them through. Oh my word. This guy did not like that. He was like, (laughs) and I thought, okay. And I went and he, there was no urgency to his plight. He, he just then turned the corner after me. He did not want me to show kindness. Did not want it, right? <laughs> so there's a predisposition to resist shows of kindness in our culture. And we need, we need to resist that. We need to be ready to show kindness to one another. Why? Why should we answer Jesus' call to unity in our community? There's one spirit, one Lord, one Father. It is in God's nature to be united as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three persons, one God, is the God who dwells in us and gives us his bond of unity. And because he's unified in and of himself, he wants us to be unified in and of ourselves together, in life together. That's the way he's built us. If we're given so great a gift by him, whose pure unity in and of himself, how can we not answer his call to unity and care for the unity that he's given us with all that we are and all the energy that we have? So God calls us to unity, but we also see in this passage an appreciation for diversity, verses 7 through 16. Uh, But to each one of us, grace has been given. Our text says, according to the measure of Christ's gift, others put it, as Christ apportioned it, Verse 7 says, grace was given according to Christ's gift. Verse 8, he gave gifts to men. Verse 11, he gave the church leaders to equip them for growth and gospel maturity. Now, what's the reason God has made you, in particular, good at what you're good at? What's the reason he's made you good at what you're good at? It's so that you can help us to mature in our love for God and our love for one another and our love for Philadelphia and through Philadelphia, the world. What do you need to learn and grow in so that you're maturing in your love for God? What do you need to learn and grow in so that you're maturing in your love for one another? What do you need to learn and grow in so that you're maturing in your love for Philadelphia and the world? 
God wants us to be rooted and established in Christ's love for us and let that flow back out of our lives, of our hearts, of our minds, of our words in every single direction towards him, towards one another, towards our city, towards our neighbors, to everyone. We're to be salt and light. Right? When you cook a great meal but you don't salt it, it's not quite enough. It needs a little salt, a little flavor. We're to be the same way in our neighborhoods in the lives of the people that, that we interact with day to day, our colleagues at work, one another. Notice that in the passage, Christians are either equipping for being equipped, they're equipping or being equipped for growth and gospel maturity. Christians are either equipping or being equipped. There's no other option. In fact, what you'll see as you study scripture further, is there's actually an axis of relationships that should be in our life. You should have people in your life that are giving away to you in the gospel, in relationship. But at the same time, you should have people that you're walking along with who are giving away to one another. And then you have people that you're giving away to. That's the way that relationships work. There's an axis of of love. There's an axis of grace. There's an axis... Of giving. I've been listening to that Hendrix song John Mary did, Axis Bold as Love. Do you know how much gospel is in that? It's an extreme, you know, he talks about, Hendrix talks about in that song the idea that he, he likens all of our, our problem things that get in the way of our relationships to characters. And he says, Anger. He stands smiling, shiny in metallic purple armor, right? Queen Jealousy Envy waits behind him. Her fiery green gown sneers at the grassy ground. Blue are the life-giving waters, taken for granted. They quietly understand. The once happy Turkish armies lay opposite ready, but wonder why the fight is on. And he talks about how those idolatries are bold as love. And he asks in his song, how do you know that? Just ask the Axis. He knows everything. We know that God himself hit the axis on the cross because he knew that we could not be in relationship ourselves and survive, that we needed him. Our diversity is not an obstacle, but a very significant means to God's working in us and growing us in grace and maturing us in the way that he would have us mature. Grace and gifts have been given to us as Christ apportioned them. In our text, it says, according to the measure of Christ's gift. I love the way that this is put. Uh, Our differences are there by God's sovereign apportionment. Sovereign apportionment. I think we should have Liberty Fairmount t-shirts made up. We would just say sovereign apportionment, right? It describes us. We've been given gifts apportioned by Christ. It's through grace that we've been given them. Context draws out what you've been given. So you've got to get involved in lots of different opportunities for ministry. You heard from the children's ministry this morning. There are lots of other ways to volunteer and get plugged in. We're trying to make a, um, a ministry brochure with contact information in it so that if you're not connected in the life of the church, you can find out ways to get in involved. But the thing about trying lots of different opportunities is sometimes context draws out a different gift in you than you originally thought you had. It takes time to know what you're strong at. It takes time to develop in it. It takes one another giving feedback to each other. But we need to do that. <clears throat> Context sometimes draw it out. Why spend time serving others in ministry? Because you'll be made more of who you're meant to be through it. As we're fond of saying 
at Liberty Fairmount, Jesus loves you too much to leave you as you are. Often we don't, we're not self-aware enough and we don't pay attention to where our areas of weaknesses are and where we need growth in enough because we feel like we're doing pretty well. But that's not the picture of the gospel. Have you ever heard, have you ever said, have you ever heard anybody say, I can't change in that area, I'm just like that. I found myself saying that too. We can't say that because Jesus didn't come to leave us as we are. He came to make us like him. He came to form his character in us. He came to take away every last vestige of sin and idolatry rooted in our lives. And he's about the work of doing that through one another. He's going to make you like him, like his character, like his love, like his gracefulness, like his peacefulness, like him in his generosity, and on and on. How will that show in you if you aren't involved and connected and plugged in to different ministry opportunities, understanding how he's apportioned his gift of grace to you for use in building up the body? There's a beauty to it. He's given us what we need. Peter writes, we've been given everything we need for life and for godliness together in him through a knowledge of him. We have an embarrassment of riches in that. Further, God chooses to surround us with people who are different from us because he knows it's going to promote his purpose of growing in grace. We need one another to grow in grace. Did you know that? This is a lot like the C.S. Lewis story where he had a group of friends and he he lost one of his friends. He died. And he looked around and he was trying to console himself. He thought, I'll have more of the other friends. And he found out that he not only didn't have his friend who died, but he, he lost what the, other, the friend who died brought out of the other friends who remained. It was more than just lost of his friends. The same is true for us. We f- we're more of who we're meant to be as we work together to know Christ better and see what that means for our lives and serving together one another. Paul says that it's so that the body of Christ may be built up. God ultimately wants us to mature, to be built up, and to stop acting like infants. We think things are going well only if we're getting along with others. But God actually says that it's also when we're not getting along with others that he's accomplishing his purposes of grace in us and through us, through the actual not getting along, that he's present. He's a light in darkness there. He's ready. It's like the gym, you know? If you go in and you go, okay, good and you go home, you're, you're not going to get healthy, right? It's only through the fatigue of pushing yourself further that your body will adjust and get healthy and get stronger. The same is true in our relationships of one another. God wants the things that ruled Christ's heart to rule ours as well. So, a call to unity, an appreciation of diversity, and finally, our struggle and God's agenda, verses 17 through 32. <clears throat> There's very practical stuff in here, so I'm going to try to be quick and and go through it, and we'll pray. Our struggle is that some of us have the tendency towards self-indulgence. What that means is that our behavior and our relationships with one another is driven, driven by what we want and not God's purposes for growing us and those who we're relating to in grace, right? So our purpose is to get what we want, but God's purpose is to give us what we really need for maturing in him with one another, Larry Crabb uh, is a Christian psychologist, and he had this old uh, comparison between need, want, and desire. It was very interesting. I've sort of distilled it into the day. 
into, uh, you know, your body needs protein to live, right? You, um, you might desire, you might want um, cheese instead of uh, some of the protein that comes from nuts, and you might desire to have a piece of meat instead of the cheese. But what we do in our sinfulness and our brokenness is we'll take our wants and our desires and we'll turn them into needs. If I don't have this piece of meat, I'm not getting my need fulfilled. Or if I don't have what I want, I'm not getting my need fulfilled. It's actually a little different than that. We have a tendency towards self-indulgence and legitimizing our wants and desires and turning them into needs at the expense of one another. And it's not going to go well for us if we continue to do that. We're not going to flourish as a community. Uh, So that's our struggle and God's agenda for that. Paul calls us to realize how much wiser God's plan is for us than our own plan. It's not, and you see that, this is a great, we talked about this being a template that you can use for the ongoing discussion we have about relationships as you move forward. This is a grid that you can look through. And this, these verses in particular are very important for the dynamic of change in your own life and in life together as we change. Verse 22 uh, says, put off. It's not just enough to stop being driven by what we want in our relationships. You can't just say, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm not going to be driven by what I want as I relate to other people. Dynamic of change, biblically, doesn't work like that. You can't just say that. We need to do that. We need to stop. But Paul says in addition to stopping our understanding, the spirit of our minds, uh, our understanding about God's purpose for relationships need to be renewed by God's spirit. It's supernatural. Our mind, our understanding has to transform about what our relationship is for and about our own agenda. So not only do we need to stop being driven by what we want in our relationships, we need to do that, but we need to be renewed in the spirit of mind and we need to also live differently as well. We need to live in a relationship in tangible ways that flow out of how much wiser God's plan is for us. It says put on the new self, created to be like God in righteousness and holiness in verse 24. So the dynamic of change is just, you know, it's not just do it. It's not just stop doing it. It's stop doing it. Be made new through the Holy Spirit in the way that you even approach it in your worldview. And put on the new self. Sometimes it's hard to even know how to be the new self because you've never lived like that. That's why we need one another. It's only through one another that we can see into what the potential is for God growing us in his image is. A couple more. Um, our struggle is that one of our struggles is the tendency towards deceit. Verse 25 uses the word falsehood, right? This was the Ephesians church struggle too. But look, he says that we're members of one another, so don't lie. What does that mean? I've used this example before. If, you're, if you go and you get a medical exam, something's wrong with your body. You go and you get a medical exam, and then your body hides what's going on, it lies to the exam and you go home like nothing's wrong and you end up with a stroke, your body hasn't worked as it should. It's lied. The members of the body lie to one another. It lies to the exam, right? And you end up in calamity. The same is true with us. If we are false with one another as one body, it's like stabbing ourselves in the vital organs. We're not going to survive that way, so we need to be truthful with one another. That's what God's agenda for us is. The life-changing power of truthfulness, verse 25. 
Life in the body, members of one another, comes through speaking the truth. Look, Peter Post, you know who Peter Post is? Peter Post is Emily Post's great-grandson. Emily wrote the famous book on etiquette, that big blue volume that you sometimes see. It talks about every piece of etiquette that you ever need to know, whether it's, okay, how do you greet the president by name if you meet him face-to-face, or, or you know, what do you do if you're having a, a party for this occasion, and what kind of napkins do you lay out? Well, Peter is her great-grandson, and uh, Emily wrote that book, but Peter recently wrote a smaller book entitled Essential Manners for Men, Etiquette Tips for Guys in particular, right? And he writes this. He says, etiquette is governed by three principles. Governed by three principles. Consideration, respect, and honesty. These provide the framework for defining every manner that has ever been formulated. And he goes on to define each of those. He says, consideration is understanding how other people and entities are affected by whatever is taking place. You're being considerate. You're understanding what's going on and how it's affecting others. Respect, recognizing how you interact with uh, another person will affect your relationship with that person. And then choosing to take the action that will build relationships rather than injure them. Respect. And honesty. Being truthful, not deceptive. Ensuring that we act sincerely. Why do I read Peter Post to you? Well, it's a cool book. Guys, if you haven't read it, you should check it out. Um, you'd be surprised at things you find in there. Very helpful. But my point is this. If basic cultural etiquette says that it is foundational that we are honest, speaking the truth with one another, that that's one of the cornerstones of life together in society, of manners, how much more so should we speak the truth with one another because Christ has made us one body? Paul uses the words members of one another. There's a lot of other practical examples and we won't have the time to get to them. Let me give you one more. The interesting, one of the most interesting things that I've, I've seen in this passage over the years is verse 28, where this, this thief is stealing, right? It says, if you're a thief in this community of Christians, stop stealing, right? But he's talking about this dynamic of change where you're made new in the attitude of your mind about what you're doing and you find something useful to do with the industry of your hands that has been prior turned toward yourself and you turn it out to others uh, that have need, so that they might be, those needs might be met. What's interesting about that is a lot of people who are caught up in exploring Christianity who are, are concerned that coming to Christ will take away who they are. In some senses that's true, but in this sense it's not, and I'll tell you why. Because the thief wasn't asked to stop his industry. He was told that the gospel would transform it. He still had industry, he still all used, all used all of those skills that, that he had to, uh, to benefit himself, but instead he turned them out. They were transformed. He started to benefit others with, through useful work. What's it like when you're defiant and you're struggling with godly obedience in your life and you're rooting down in your sinful patterns and you don't want to change and you're resisting change and you just lock yourself down in there and you won't budge? Well, that's defiance, it's a lack of obedience, but what does that tendency look like transformed by the gospel? You know what it looks like? It looks like goodness or integrity, fruit of the Spirit. You're with people who want you to do something that you don't want to do, you know Christ wouldn't want you to do, and you root down, and you don't do it, and you maintain your goodness or integrity. It's the same tendency, but it's utterly transformed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Okay. 
I'm trying to cut graciously. Um, Okay. Friends, none of this is going to work if we don't have drawing next to Jesus, close to Jesus, understanding who he is, getting to know him better, first and foremost in our mind. If we begin with ourself and our effort and our ability and our capabilities and our giftedness or any of the other things or, or methods or ways of going about relationships that we talked about, it's not going to work. But the reason it does work is because in this passage, Paul teaches that Christians living out of their calling by Christ will show up. That calling will show up in our relationships. If you're living out of your calling by Christ, it will show up in your relationships in the body of Christ. This is because at the heart of the gospel is the dynamic of God serving his people and his people serving others and one another as a result. For example, in Matthew 20, Jesus said this. Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, meaning you know, basically every other culture on earth, Lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, in our corresponding reading that we're going through, and the leaders have, as we study this passage in our home meetings this week, in the Relationships, A Mess Worth Making book, the authors write this about how God serves his people and apply that to us in the church today. They write, Paul ground our unity in the unity of the Trinity, not in our ability to get along. We get along because Father, Son, and Spirit have allowed us to do so. We can give grace because we have been given grace. Jesus humbled himself The Father gently and patiently works out our salvation. The Holy Spirit forbears and abides with us even in the face of our sin, convicting us and correcting us, but never condemning. Father, Son, and Spirit were torn apart the moment Jesus died on the cross so that we could be united with them in his resurrection and united together through his Spirit dwelling in us. He lost everything in the fullness of his perfect unity and perfect diversity so that we could have it. That's a gift we're fighting for. Let's do that. Let's do that as we go out into the week. Okay, so in summary, we covered call to unity. The key point is that we need to care for the unity that he's given us with all that we are. The second point that we covered is the appreciation of diversity. And the key point there is that only through the diversity of our gifts working together are we made more and more into who we're meant to be? And third, we covered our struggle in God's agenda. And the key point here is that there's a distance between those two things for every one of us. But in Christ, he's narrowing the distance. He's making it smaller and smaller through the hopeful and joyful relationship-building work among us of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of life together in community is our growth in grace. What do we need to do as we go into our studies this week? One thing I'd like you to do, just off the bat, is spend time in your groups in prayer, seeking God, and where you and your group need to grow in grace, in your love for God, in your love for one another, in your love for Philadelphia and the world.
Seek him on that. Await his answer. And when he convicts you, go and do it. Follow him. Follow his call. He's a glorious leader. And we need to follow him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're grateful that your uh, word is insightful, that you, um, that you know us, Lord. It's not as though you can't relate to us. You know us inside and out. You, you want to transform us. You want to free us from the things that bind us from being who you mean us to be. Indeed, you've given us liberty, our namesake, so that we might walk around in freedom, not as enslaved servants to other priorities in our life. We ask, Lord, that you would reshape our hearts together through community to uh, change our agenda, that we might put off our old agendas, the old priorities that we made more important to you, that we may be made new in our understanding about those things through your spirit working in us. And that we might figure out new and insightful and exciting ways together to put on the new self made to be like you, made to be like your character and your righteousness and your holiness, giving grace to others living for others rather than ourselves, living for your glory rather than for ourselves. Father, we'll find that we, if we aim for you, as C.S. Lewis said, the other things will be thrown in as well. We don't do it for that. We draw near to you because of who you are and for your sake alone. Now work through us as we go out into the world together as those who love and serve you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray.